are listening to Perks of Being a Book Lover, a show about books, people who read, and how reading at its very best is a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. There is the old philosophical question. If a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it, does it make a sound? Likewise, if you read a book and don't discuss it, have you enjoyed all the perks of being a book lover? I'm your host, Amy. I've been a member of numerous book clubs over the last 25 years and started quite a few. I love asking people what they're reading so that they'll ask me the same. I'm a vintage bookseller, a traveler wannabe, and a fanatic about dogs. And I'm your host, Carrie. I'm an English teacher, a freelance writer, a blogger, and the person whose Instagram feed features more photos of my cats than my kids. Each week, we will talk with a guest who shares the love of reading, how they impart that passion, and what books really catch them on fire. We will also tell you about our literary lives, what books are on our nightstands, and other bookish fun. Welcome. When you think about taking English classes in college, do you envision heavy, dusty textbooks written by old dead guys like Thoreau, Chaucer, and Dickens? Well, perhaps that was true 20 years ago, but colleges now have changed a bit, and we have a real live English professor with us today to talk about how teaching university English has changed and what things have stayed the same. Dr. John Blanford is an associate professor of English at Bellarmine University and also leads their honors program. He discusses how he incorporates more than just old white guys in his curriculum, what modern authors will be considered classics, why an English education is useful for any career, and what music he loves to listen to at really high decibels. Dr. Blanford is funny and animated and makes me a little wistful about college. I would have loved taking one of his classes. We're in the studio today with John Blanford. He is an English guru over there at Bellarmine University. He's an associate professor of English and director of the honors program. And Carrie and I wanted to talk to him about the English literature canon and how it has changed over the years. So welcome, John. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) So tell us a little bit about yourself and how you found a love of English and what brought you to become a professor. Well, I found a love of English by being a kid who read books a lot. Uh, (laughs) I was a bookish kid. I I suspect many of your listeners uh, once were or perhaps still are. And then I went to college and I discovered that that was something I was actually kind of good at, right? Reading and and talking about uh, other books and writing about them and then having these conversations about what I was reading with uh, smart people was really exciting and energizing for me. And then, like a, I suspect a lot of 21, 22-year-olds, <laughs> however old I was when I graduated, I didn't know what the heck I was going to do. So I went on to get a master's, and uh, during the master's, I taught. I had a, a teaching assistantship, so I actually taught classes, and I discovered, again, kind of by happenstance, I really enjoyed doing that, too. <laughs> and I thought, you know, what does one need to do that for a living? And the answer is a PhD. So... Off I went uh, to Indiana University for an undisclosed number of years uh, <laughs> later. Uh, m- m- many years elapsed, and I have a PhD. And I actually should say I am from Louisville. Oh, uh, okay. And so I'm really fortunate uh, to be back. And I was actually out in Los Angeles at MLA, and people who love books may know that MLA is this uh, cabal of people who determine how you use parentheses or whatever. But they also... <laughs> 
it's true. But they also hold, a, and believe me, they're very serious about it, but they hold a convention and that's where you go and interview for jobs. When I ran into a colleague who's now at Xavier and she told me, hey, there's a late job ad for 19th century American literature, which is what I do. Uh, in your hometown, she knew I was from Louisville. And I said, really, where? And she said, Bellarmine or something like that. <laughs> I like, I know that place. But I tailored my materials, withheld this information from my family. I didn't think they would get it. And then got the job. Very happy to be here. Just finished my eighth uh, year. So I went to Bellarmine Yay. a number of years ago. So I remember what those classes were like. So tell us a little bit about what the English requirements are now at Bellarmine, you know, and I know it differs between somebody who's non-major and major, but tell us what, what the focus is now. Well, I'm going to audit your transcript later. <laughs> uh, I, Make sure she's legit. Right, right. So you, did you graduate mask in the 90s, I'm guessing? Late 90s? Early um, 2000s? Oh, you are so kind. Um, <laughs> when did I graduate the first time? 95, okay. I think. I, so my sense of how the curriculum in the major has changed since then is that we've built in more choice we think myself included right that reading is about cultivating habits of mind and critical thinking skills and the ability to pay a careful attention to language and to tease out the implications of language and to make compelling arguments and to hone those types of skills and certainly some texts are better suited to that uh you know promoting that than, than others, right? We don't just read the backs of cereal boxes or whatever, <laughs> I assure you. Uh, but, you know, in the last 25 years or so, the canon has exploded, and all these assumptions about what constitutes literature or what makes literature worth reading have been interrogated and re-interrogated. And Bellarmine has responded to that just like departments across uh, the country have. So we do still have some core classes that are required, right? Uh, all of our students uh, take an uh, introduction to academic writing class. I think they should take several, but they take one. <laughs> yeah. uh, so uh, writing, not texting. And then they all take a set of surveys. There's a early American survey that I teach that is I begin with Native American oral literatures and then proceed through 1865. So we cover preposterously hundreds of years in a semester. And then there's a later one that's taught by my very lucky colleague because she only has to cover 1865 through, you know, like yesterday, which <laughs> yeah. is the blink of an eye. <laughs> and then there are two surveys in British literature. The first, I think, is like Beowulf through, again, kind of preposterously like the beginning of the 19th century, and then someone takes it over. And so that gives people a basis of certain kind of literary histories that are still predominant in British and American literature. And then after that, they have a lot of choice, uh, and probably more so than when you were there. I know there used to be a world literature requirement and various others. The only course still required at the upper level is Shakespeare, uh, that guy, right? <laughs> uh, and then after that, we teach a lot of different courses that we develop and propose in areas of interest to us, in areas we hope that will be of possible interest to students. My little bizarre esoteric corner of scholarly expertise is U.S. crime literature. So I do a U.S. crime literature uh, course that the students really enjoy. I do a seminar just on Poe. We just read Poe for 16 uh, weeks, which is quite fun. And the students always really enjoy. I've done a course on Moby Dick and Uncle Tom's Cabin, where we read these two giant novels that everyone kind of talks about but seldom reads, I think. Gosh, I do a Literatures of Slavery and Abolition course, which is a secondary kind of scholarly interest of mine. So, and everyone does these types of courses. And we do it, you know, based on the stable of professors we have and their strengths. Uh, my colleague Annette does Caribbean literature, Harlem Renaissance. My colleague uh, Kathy does Native American 
uh, literature, women's literature. So there's a real range. I know my colleague Chuck fun one that was uh, kind of the origins of British fantasy and adventure or something oh. like that. He's a British literature person. And, and he's like, oh, I'll pitch this course. And they all signed up for it because Harry Potter, right? Oh. Uh, but they also read Jules Verne and Charles Dickens and that kind of stuff too. So it sounds to me like the, I mean, what we think of as the canon is a lot broader than it used to be. Yes. Is that accurate? The parameters, it seems to me, have expanded. You know what? What I didn't mention, and I should, and this is the chair of our department, you may be surprised to learn, Jenny Berger, she's not even a literature professor per se. She got a PhD from the same literature department that I did, but she actually does film. And the idea there is that obviously films are very complex constructed texts uh, that can be read using many of the same interpretive tools that we use to read and, and think about and analyze and write about literature, but they also have their own particular kind of formal properties, and and so she does just amazing things with those classes, too. And, you know, the students love that kind of stuff, although sometimes they're like, I thought we were just going to watch a movie. No! <laughs> we're going to think very carefully about them. So that's kind of part of our larger universe, too. So the books that are required in the beginning, or even when you expand it to these new courses that you're talking about, what are the elements of those works that you are focusing on that make them required reading? Uh, well, this is the part where I don't purport to speak on behalf of my colleagues or even the discipline, or, or I'm certainly not the canon police or anything. <laughs> but what I do as an early Americanist is... I try and pull together texts that I think mattered to the cultural and historical moment in which they were written, right? That helped to register in especially powerful or maybe even sometimes kind of volatile and contradictory ways the uh, desires and anxieties and values of the culture in and of that moment. I mean, I, as you might not be surprised to learn, given that I do 18th and 19th century stuff, kind of an amateur historian, I suppose, <laughs> and, and history and, and how literature engages, interacts with, interfaces with uh, the history that we're living uh, is what primarily interests me. Now, that's not true, it seems to me, of everyone, right? Mm -hmm. And that there are people who take various theoretical approaches to literature, and sure. there are people who, you know, this is how the canon used to be, it seems to me, are looking for big, enduring themes and, and values and transcendent-type uh, stuff. I'm usually more interested in that kind of overlap between kind of culture and politics and society and uh, the stories we tell about ourselves. So when I put together a course, I'm really looking for texts that register in an especially provocative way some of that stuff. So can you give us some specific examples in, in one of your many classes that you talked about teaching, maybe like a couple different books from one particular class that you might introduce students to that were particularly powerful in terms of that historical? Well, I have it. So, okay, I'm going to use just my survey course sure. as an example, because I think this gets at what we we're talking about. So when I took the survey, uh, when I was an undergrad, it was very much kind of, and this is early American, right? We began with the Puritans and the Pilgrims and probably ended with Emily Dickinson. I still teach and she's wonderful right but i actually have tried to we still read puritan literature but i also bring in lots of different stuff we read texts from new spain because it seems to me that's part of the, kind of how the americas were imagined right we're reading them in translation we read as i mentioned native american oral literatures i try and bring in as many texts as i can uh, sometimes this is hard to do in the 19th century but by women and writers of color just to bring in those perspectives because i don't remember myself being exposed to many of those perspectives emily dickinson uh, notwithstanding and so 
doing that kind of as much as I can. But the fun thing that I've done, I think, with this course, and this is on the internet, so you can you can people can Google this if they're having trouble sleeping or something. I belong to this especially dorky society, one of many dorky societies I belong to, called the American Antiquarian Society. And this is a bunch of people who I think breathe in dust in libraries all day, and they excavate uh, forgotten texts. And every year they pick a couple of texts, and they're like, please teach one of these in, in one of your class's uh, colleagues, right? Take this text no one has read in 150 years and see what you can do with it. And I thought, well, I want to do this because I like these people. But instead of putting it in an upper-level course where it would probably make sense, I was like, oh, I'll put it in the survey because <laughs> it, it gives me this mechanism to use with the students to like talk about the canon itself. It's this kind of meta exercise where we read this uh, text and then I have the students blog about it over the course of the semester because I don't, you know, they read it in installments, right? And then they uh, respond to each other's thoughts on it and so on and so forth. And the question I pose is, you know, what might this particular text add to our understanding about the literature or, or culture of the period that we're not getting in these other texts? Uh, that we're reading because we still read Hawthorne and we still read Melville and we read Harriet Beecher Stowe and we read Frederick Douglass and you know people that the students have already heard of but what is this forgotten little text what does it have to show us and we've read a lot of uh, really cool and, and neat ones we read this really I, I love this one called the female review about a woman and it's supposed kind of journal and story but it has all these other genres it mixes in who actually dresses as a man in order to participate in the American Revolution. Mm -hmm. And she does. I mean, this is like a true story. Her yeah. name is Deborah Sampson. And then no one, like, susses this out, right, until afterwards. And then she's actually trying to get her pension, which people were given for fighting the American. And they were, like, not giving her her pension. Weren't even eligible to fight. And they like, I fought. And she's using this text that she co-authors with a guy whose last name is Mann, strangely, right, uh, in order to kind of advocate for this. And it's just a really interesting kind of little text that disrupts a lot of our assumptions about what people were like in the late 18th century. How do students react to this? Because I, I know a little bit about how high schools teach and the materials they teach. It sounds like if they're taking this survey class, they're getting a lot of information. Do they feel a little bit like their minds are blown? Yeah, I I think our students are pretty game at, at Bellarmine. At least they seem to be, right? Sometimes, I sometimes get, oh, there's too much reading in this class. and all Well, that. it's an English class. Right. There's going to be a lot of reading. That's but... exactly what I want to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know. I mean, they're English majors because they want to read. I, I actually think our Bellarmine students are pretty capable readers and thinkers and writers. Well, I have to say I'm impressed by what you were saying you teach in your survey class. I was also an English major. I was an English major at Penn State. Oh. But <laughs> we had nothing as far as New Spain. We oh. had nothing as far as Native American. There perhaps was a you know an elective course you can take on that, but I don't really even remember that. There was obviously, a, there was a course for black American literature. And Bellarmine did when I was there back in the dark ages. Dr. Celeste Nichols was there and she taught a, a whole semester on Toni Morrison, which was fantastic. And I mean, that was, I don't remember, but that was in the 90s. So we had the first international Toni Morrison conference. I actually read a paper at that conference. That is awesome. <laughs> Do you still have the brochure thing? Can Do you I look that up? It's somewhere. Mean, somewhere. Okay. Your paper. Okay. So. I need to I need to find wow. that because I, I was there. I thought about that when she passed away a few weeks ago. Yeah. I was like, oh my gosh. Uh, 
It was not included in her New York Times obituary for some strange reason. <laughs> and I just thought that's a real honor. Well, I also thought it was interesting, too, that it sounds like the way that you teach it is more the way that you would actually want people to interact with literature in their everyday lives. I feel like when I went to school, it was more about reading the work for the sake of reading the work and, and analyzing it as a piece of literature as opposed to a uh, something that you read that you interact with in your daily life and what's going on around you. And I think that that's an interesting... I'm not saying that nobody taught like that when I was in school, but that's something a little bit different than I remember. Do people bring up like the canon and... Do you feel like most professors are kind of like, okay, the things are things have changed and we're okay with that? Or do you find that there are still pockets of people who are like, no, we need to read these certain things and that's what we need to do? That's interesting to me. I mean, in some ways, I think I'm, I don't mean this in a political sense at all, but a little more conservative in that I do like 19th century and 18th mm-hmm. century. You know, I'm not doing stuff that was written yesterday, right? So I don't get a lot of... Uh, People say, oh, you've abandoned the canon. I'm like, I actually live on Hawthorne Avenue. And I teach Hawthorne pretty much in the club there. And the students, it seems to me, they're not as alert, those kind of boundaries. I think in some ways that culture war was waged even before I went to graduate school. And there are still people, I think, kind of out there kind of fighting it and so on and so forth. But the idea that there's a there's some sort of rigid set of texts that everyone should read and only those and that has it seems to me not prevailed right and it would be in some ways a more strange thing to tell students that now you know that said i mean you can go to bellarmine and read the iliad uh, we i have a colleague who teaches dante in a great course moby dick it's actually my favorite book and you don't get any more kind of arch canonical uh, than that, right? But what I'm trying to do is to get students, like enlist students to join me in this uh, shared project of thinking about you know, what literature means and why it matters. And it seems to me in order to do that, you have to give students the opportunity to come up with those answers, right? And so this kind of old model where, where you read a book with students and then you would kind of lecture to them about what it means and why it matters, it, it doesn't really achieve the the outcomes that I want. You mentioned having students blog. I mean, so do they still like have to write literary analysis papers and all that stuff? Or is it more informal? Or do you blend both? I, you know, I do both. Okay. I, I certainly have. And I think everyone has them do an analytical interpretive uh, essays. But yeah, I do try to mix it up. And I think a lot of people try and mix it up in various ways. So they're kind of blogging. And I should say too, they, they then drew on that blog to write a larger paper using each other as sources, which I thought was kind of fun, to construct uh, their own arguments. But yeah, I, in some ways that kind of classic uh, literary paper is is still uh, alive and, and kicking as it should be. I mean, I think it's, there's a reason why it's, it's a good thing to think in an organized way about an organized text and to look very carefully and closely at evidence and analyze it and unpack it, I think is something that I, I still see as having real value. I teach barely any 18th and 19th century literature in my gen ed classes and the service courses. I try to almost teach almost all contemporary stuff because these are non-majors. So I teach stuff like, I don't know if you know Jennifer Egan. I always mm, teach yeah. a visit from the Goon Squad as the mm, big novel yeah, yeah. fiction mm-hmm. unit because that's such a fun book. It is uh, fun. And she does so many interesting things, explodes all these assumptions about, you know, what a novel should be or look like. She It's all out, told out of order. Uh, but it's also a lovely book, right? Mm-hmm. And it really, it's very powerful and I 
quite sad and, and, and beautiful. And it really connects with the students. So they're like, oh, and they're not majors, right? And, they, and for many of them, they haven't read a novel, you know, like ever. And if they did, it was a scarlet letter and they hated it, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I try and teach stuff like that. I always teach a contemporary a book of poetry. And I'm like, hey, look, it doesn't rhyme. Uh, and, and that's interesting. I always make them go see a Humana play because, hey, look, a play and it's not uh, Shakespeare in your high school mm -hmm. auditorium or mm -hmm. Our Town or whatever you've seen, right? I try to do that too, just to rattle their cages. I think that's great because I worry sometimes that like my daughter actually is reading the Scarlet Letter right now <laughs> in high school. She's she's a junior, but sometimes I worry that the focus on some of those and I know that you love them because that's your focus. But you know, eighteenth, nineteenth American literature, it's a you know for for a sixteen, seventeen year old is a little on the dull side. I think we could say I want them to love literature and want them to love reading. So not that they can't read the Scarlet Letter. I just hope that her English teacher, in addition, is going to have them read something a little bit more modern that they could relate to a little better. That is precisely my, yeah, I mean, it seems to me that, if, and really one of my goals of that gen ed literature class is I want students to come away thinking like, you know, I actually enjoy reading. Mm -hmm. Right. And so for me, inflecting the scarlet letter on them would not achieve that goal. A visit from the Goon Squad they might like. I did Karen Joy Fowler's We Were All Completely Beside mm -hmm. Ourselves in that class, which is another mm -hmm. like lovely contemporary book. Uh, so I'm always trying to pick something mm -hmm. that'll, Mm -hmm. that I think I try and think back okay what was it like when I was 20 or 19 mm -hmm. and what might I have cared about and I try not to be pandering about it but yeah. it, again it's you know I want them to come away uh, you know literature you don't want to be drudgery yeah it's not spinach right? yeah. <laughs> uh, although I like spinach if my daughter is listening spinach yeah. is good that's true no, no, you. are there any books that you think used to be taught regularly that have sort of fallen out of favor or vice versa I was confessing a moment ago that I love Moby Dick. I don't know why you would confess to that. I was boasting that I love Moby Dick. I love that book. Uh, I've only taught it once, though, just because it's such a heavy lift, and it seems to me maybe those things used to be taught uh, more often. I should say, you know, when I was an undergrad, we did read uh, the Iliad and Dante and all this stuff in a required world literature course. We don't have a world literature course. And I suspect if we did, it would be a much bigger and more diverse world mm. than the world of the Greeks and the Europeans that we read back then. So in that way, I, I you know, I don't know. None of that is, is, and in some way that's kind of like a loss, it seems to me. But in a way, it's also like, well, they're still reading. They're reading different right. things. And they're reading interesting things. I don't think I answered your question at all. <laughs> so I, I'm curious, what do you think... So like with Moby Dick or, you know, a classic, what we would consider in quotes, a classic piece of literature. What is the benefit of, of reading one of those? It depends on what book you're talking about. <laughs> but, and I think I, to speak to Moby Dick, I just think it's this amazingly ambitious work of human imagination. I know it sounds kind of trite, but I think it's very true. And it's this beautiful book. Uh, and I know you've read it because you said you did. Uh <laughs> And if, if I haven't read, rolled my eyes once. <laughs> it's wonderful. And it's this wonderful book about knowing. It's a book in which Ishmael, who is the narrator, tries to approach Moby Dick from all these different angles. There are chapters about cytology. There are chapters about art. There are chapters about religion. All these different ways of trying to explain or comprehend this whale that's at the center uh, of the novel, right? Ahab has ways of doing this too, which are very violent. He wants to dominate, kill, and take revenge on this anthropomorphized whale that he blames for his legs on and so forth, right? And the beauty of the book, it seems to me, is it presents all these different ways of knowing 
the whale only to kind of hold up each in turn as inadequate, right? And that there's something about the whale and its whaleness, which is uh, not, can't be comprehended at least by any one of these things in and of itself. And I don't think that that's just true of whales, right? Some of the kind of big classic works of literature, right, they show us lots of different ways of looking at something. They allow us to inhabit uh, perspectives that are much more kind of complicated than any we could take on ourselves. I'll cite another novel that I think is, is canonical in a different way and that it fell out of favor in the 20th century around at the same time that people discovered Moby Dick, which nobody read when Melville wrote and published it in the 19th century. Maybe Melville's mom, right? <laughs> uh, probably, uh, but Uncle Tom's Cabin, everyone read in the 19th century. People read it over and over again. They read it to pieces, right? Mm -hmm. And then nobody read it in the 20th century because it was a sentimental novel. I'm putting that in scare quotes because I like sentimental novels. And I think that's dismissive. It was a women's literature. I'm putting that in giant scare quotes. You can't see <laughs> listeners, but I am. Uh, because this was a dismissive and sexist uh, judgment. But it's a, it's a hugely important novel, right? That really did kind of change people's hearts and minds. It's problematic. It uses all sorts of racial stereotypes and so on and so forth. But it's this kind of powerful attempt to kind of intervene in the culture in an, uh, in its moment, right, that had a, a real impact. And for that, and I think it's a different way of kind of looking at literary value. Books, I think, that are kind of complicated or that open up lots of conversations in their own moment but actually continue, people continue to have conversations about them because they're so rich and complex or contradictory or odd, right, that they kind of keep opening up uh, conversations. To me, that would be, I guess, a, a classic. Yeah. I like well, I feel like I really wish... You'd heard him say I, that. I wish you I'd read heard him did. say that because now I'm like, oh, that, oh, okay, I, I see that. Now I got so hung up on the all the different types of whales in that particular chapter that I was, oh, the main story. Can we just do the main story? And I set aside all those chapters, and they were a bit of a slog. So now maybe I'll have to put that on my TBR or TBRR oh, to gosh. be reread. So I really like your thoughts about what constitutes a classic or why some things might be constituted a classic. Are there any books that you could think of that you think might be a modern classic or that in years to come people think of now as being? Yes, lots. Beloved, for sure. Mm. I mean, I think that has already become a modern, a modern classic. classic. Yeah. I was just uh, thinking about that with uh, Toni Morrison. Mm -hmm. I, that's a book I teach in a couple different classes, and it... Uh, but in some ways, it's not even her best book. I mean, maybe that would be Song of Solomon. I don't know. She has so many great books, right? Clearly, she's one of the more important writers of the 20th century. And she's an interesting example of those two things I was talking about, uh, in that her books are just remarkably aesthetically complex, and they are in a kind of uh, high modernist sort of way. I mean, they work on that level, but they're also these kind of political, culturally socially engaged uh things too right mm -hmm. so they they allow you to have all sorts of different conversations right to me uh, she wrote several several books that it, it, i suspect people will be reading you know a century from now i'm kind of a dubious character to bring to talk about the canon because uh, a lot of my scholarship is on people who aren't canonical i have a book chapter with cambridge university press collection on late 19th century women's detective fiction nobody really reads that which is why i wrote about it and a lot of it's really good uh, and really interesting. It has just been kind of uh, skipped over. Anna Catherine Green is, is the Leavenworth case. This is, is uh, one may, people may have heard of, but also Harriet Prescott Spofford and a lot of others. So that's cool stuff. So I write about like wacky stuff like that. And then when I read <laughs> contemporary stuff, I read a lot of contemporary 
crime literature. I like Megan Abbott a lot. I don't know if you know her. I haven't, uh, I've heard of her, but I haven't read anything by uh, her. People, uh, you know, like that. And so uh-huh. I, I don't know. Richard but, Price, uh, <laughs> I think, is great. But is he going to, you know, be uh, on the wall at Barnes & Noble at some time, standing next to Emily Dickinson? I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. But he's great. Maybe he should be. Yeah. So sometimes being an English major is rough because you can be the butt of a lot of jokes. You know, nobody wants to say not well I shouldn't say that not nobody wants to say they're an English major but when you say you're an English major there's a lot of eye rolls because I, I think because people think well what are you going to do with that you know right I, mean, I think probably English English majors sometimes can be lumped in with like philosophy major like what are you going to do with that yeah. so what do you think is the benefit what what do you get and you kind of mentioned this at, at the beginning about the critical thinking which I think is huge and I think people seem like they lack but what do you think some of the benefits are of being an English major yeah you know I've actually been thinking about this a lot uh in part because uh so full disclosure I mean I still teach a couple classes a year but I'm mostly an administrator and I direct a big program that has tons of students in it and our biggest major is biology and BMB we have a lot of pre-med students pre-law and so on and so forth and we do have some English students, and they're really good. But it's not, like, the predominant major. And when I in college, it was in college, <laughs> edit that, please. Uh, it was, right? I mean, you would add English and philosophy, and it has seems to have lost some uh, prestige. This seems to me very strange. And actually, so some of the alums, Bellarmine alums, with whom I've interacted, I just went to a baseball game with a guy who majored in English and graduated in 2000, and he's a really successful attorney in Cincinnati, and his firm has clients like Pete Rose and Johnny Bench. That's okay, I think. This guy's getting told <laughs> Pete Rose especially really need lawyers. So I mean, he has these great seats, and he's doing he's the same age as me, but mm, I bet his house is a little nicer, and that kind of thing. I mean, he's doing really well. We have graduate who's a pediatric endocrinologist. Um, I have to think about how to pronounce that. Endocrinologist, uh, yeah, yes. And, and, you know, that person's an English major. I, so, I mean, this idea that somehow being an English major like disqualifies you from doing anything useful is, I think, silly. But it can become this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy if people don't want to, you know, hire English majors or, you know, just discount that. But I, I really do think that the ability to think and to look at evidence and to think carefully about it and... And actually, the ability to focus on something, it seems to me, is in short supply. And reading is it teaches us to do that. It helps us uh, practice that. And then, frankly, the ability to communicate effectively orally and in writing is in increasingly short supply. As I don't know how effectively I'm communicating orally here. But, uh, <laughs> but, but that's something that you, you learn how to do as an English major. You certainly get lots of practice doing it. So... I don't know. I actually, I don't want to say I weep and gnash my teeth about this so much, but I just think it's, a, to me, a really sad and kind of attenuated understanding of what the value of an education is. And also, even if you just approach education from the most practical kind of vocational perspective, these are actual portable skills. I mean, so I always think, again, I'm probably sorry you asked this question. <laughs> the technical skills expire. They're like a dozen eggs in your fridge. I mean, you know, so you can learn how to do this program that we're recording this on. But, you know, five years from now, there will be some different t- technology that we can't even imagine right now. So you would have to retrain somebody anyway. But thinking and, and communicating are enduringly important skills. Well, I, I just know our governor has said some things about people who major in the liberal arts. I tell people, there are many, many people in business who 
cannot communicate well. And so there is a value in being good with language and being able to communicate well that not every person who's in the business world, you know, I, I think sometimes people think, oh, well, English majors, they're librarians, they're teachers, mm -hmm. uh, they're writers. But there's a lot of value that people who think in that way can bring to all sorts of different professional fields. I also th think that it helps with empathy. And when you read, you are reading about people from lots of different uh, walks of life, lots of different si situations that helps you develop empathy. And I think we could use a lot more empathy in our in our world right now. Well, on that positive note, I think we'll take a quick break. And when we come back, we will talk about what we're reading. We're back with John Blanford and Carrie and I and John are all going to talk about what we are reading. So Carrie, what are you what are you reading? So I just finished a book called Feed by M.T. Anderson. I had never heard of this book, but I started doing some research for a project that I'm going to have my students do. And they have to pair a classic text with something more contemporary and compare and contrast and do some stuff with it. So I found this book. It was actually a finalist for the National Book Award. And I discovered that he has written another book that is now on my TBR list that also won the National Book Award. So uh, I'm excited about this new author. But anyway, this book is called Feed. You can pair it with George Orwell's 1984, because there are some similarities between this book and that one. In this book, there are two primary characters, Titus and Violet, and they are hooked into the feed. So basically what the feed is, is what we do with our phones, where we look at them and we see ads and Facebook and get information. Those are essentially part of your brain in this book. And so the book focuses on the relationship that Titus and Violet have. She's got a feed, but there's some things that aren't 100% efficiently working in her feed. And so the book examines the dangers of what can happen if we incorporate technology too, too closely with our lives. So it's futuristic. So it's kind of got a little bit of like a sci-fi bend to it. Is it dystopian? Yes, yes, it, it, it is dystopian. The earth is not in great condition in this book. Uh, people can go to different planets. So it actually, at the beginning, it starts out on the moon. They're going to the moon for a, like a vacation. But I liked it. I mean, it's interesting because in the book, the language, like it's a super quick read because the language is so simplistic, which... It kind of mirrors the, it kind of, the feed or text. Right, or like that media. whole texting, social media, you know, like when I email or text my children and, and they text me back K, like they can't even put an O in front of it. So, so it's a very quick read, but it does give you a lot to think about and, and just to consider like, like, where do we want this to go? What is technology like in my life? And, you know, what, where do we get meaning? Where do we get real meaning? from in our lives so I thought it was pretty good and you know maybe maybe some of my students will decide that they want to read it we'll see so 
How about you, John? What are you reading? Well, yeah, can I say, just as an aside, you know, one technology that people were really anxious about at one point in time was the novel. Uh, really? Oh, yeah. Uh, and this new technology, I mean, we don't think of it, but it is in some ways a right. technology. And people were really anxious about people reading. They were especially anxious about women and children reading mm. and the corrupting or seductive influence that reading could have on women and children. And they were especially anxious about people reading fiction. Um, I always just think about that when people are like, oh, video game, you know, there's always this new kind of thing that we're worried about. I'm like, well, things will be okay because people were worried about novels. And they were like, <laughs> please read a novel! <laughs> just anyone! We don't even care! Right? So, I Actually, I saw something about that the other day. So the New York Times has a, like, a time machine thing where... Well, the ones that I have seen are usually in the New York Times book section, but they'll they'll have a throwback to when the New York Times reviewed like a really famous work. But they had one about how people were worried about all the novels that people were reading. So exactly to your point. It's kind of crazy. crazy. That is crazy. But what am I reading right now? So sorry that you asked this question. I'll try and answer this <laughs> succinctly since I already sort of answered this before the recording. But right now I'm doing a research project. It's actually part of the Kentucky Humanities Speakers Bureau. So if anyone wants to book my talk, you should do that. I'm just shamelessly <laughs> plugging my own talk. Uh, and it's about a murder that took place in Frankfurt in 1825 where a guy who was a attorney general and was about to start his term as a state representative, was stabbed to death on his very doorstep by another attorney. This guy's name was Solomon P. Sharp, and the man who murdered him, his name was Jeroboam Beecham. And so this thing kind of went 19th century, 1820s viral, uh, in that it, all the newspapers picked it up. Edgar Allan Poe writes his first and only play about it. Uh, William Gilmore Sims, a 19th century uh, author, writes two 400-page novels about it, both of which I have now read, uh, and they're quite long. <laughs> Robert Penn Warren writes a novel about it in the, in the 20th century. And so it's kind of taken up in its own time, and it's fictionalized over and over again. And, and there's various stage adaptations to other than in Poe's. And it becomes this, it's this kind of wacky text for a variety of reasons. Our hero, I suppose, is the first person to be uh, executed in the Commonwealth of Kentucky, but not before he and his wife, Anne Cook uh, Beecham, uh, attempt to uh, commit suicide by drinking laudanum in prison. This does not work, so they then try a second time by stabbing themselves. She succeeds, he fails, and he's dragged to the gallows, <laughs> bleeding from his wounds as a trip, uh, in the Commonwealth of Kentucky in its wisdom and prudence decides, hey, you can't kill yourself. You're due to be executed. And there's a big crowd, so they get out in the gallows before he can he can die and execute him in, in timely fashion there. And so it's this kind of lurid, sensational tale. It has also issues of uh, sex in that the reason why he, he kills this politician, this other attorney, is because during a very ugly 1825 campaign, I don't know if it's reassuring to people to know that campaigns are used to be really ugly, uh, just like they are today. Uh, but one thing that had surfaced during this campaign was this allegation that Sharp had fathered a child out of wedlock with this woman who was now the wife of this other man. And then this was in part uh, countered 
by, and it's unclear who uh, circulated this particular rumor, but they're saying, well, it couldn't have been his child. This was this uh, stillborn child because this child was, in fact, uh, multiracial. So you have kind of racial prejudice, obviously a big thing in Kentucky at the time, in the mix, uh, too. So you have kind of sex and race and even questions, this is interesting to me, about the legitimacy of the election. And Everything that, old is new again. Well, you know, <laughs> supposedly more people voted in this election than were eligible you know, uh-huh. eligible voters. So hmm. you have these kind of questions. So all these kind of complicated anxieties about the legitimacy of the electoral process and whether people were making kind of good choices about their leaders and the press and the things that were being circulated in the press constellate around this murder. And then these various authors and their fictionalized versions like pick up on these and amplify them and mute some of them. And so that's kind of the thing that I'm kind of currently uh, reading and investigating. Wow. That's, that's, really, that's a lot going that's on. That's a really interesting story. <laughs> so Amy, how about you? What do you have going on? So several years ago, a good friend of mine insisted that I must read a book called Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurtry. And I was hesitant because I thought, I do not want to read a Western. I just had it in my head that I wouldn't like Westerns, but I did read Lonesome Dove and loved it. Didn't we read? Didn't you suggest that for book club? Yes, we read it for book club. I I love, love, love that book. And so ever since then, occasionally I will see what I consider sort of like a literary Western, more modern, that I want to give a try. And I've read a few recently that I've really liked. But I finished one a couple weeks ago called Whiskey When We're Dry by John Larison. And this was published, um, I think, last year. It just came out in paperback. The main character is a woman who, on the back of the of the book, someone had given a review of it and said it was kind of like Arya Stark from Game of Thrones meets True Grit. And I would say that that is pretty close. It's set around the 1880s, and the main character is a, at this time she's a girl, her name's Jeselyn Harney. And she lives on a homestead out west. They never really say what state it is. I'm guessing it might be Montana or somewhere uh, around there. And she's growing up with her father and her older brother. And their livelihood comes from raising cattle. Her mother died when she was very young. So she's never had that maternal figure in her life. Her father gets hooked on morphine or, or laudlum as what they would call it then. And he's really unable to take care of the farm and the homestead and things like that. And there's a lot of tension between her older brother and her father. And eventually her older brother runs off, runs away and doesn't come back. And then her father dies in a freak accident and she's left an orphan on this homestead out in the West. And if you've watched enough Westerns or read enough Western books, you know that things were very dangerous in the West for women. There weren't a lot of women there. Most of them were prostitutes or were part of a pioneer family, but things were just dangerous, especially by yourself. She's 17 years old at this time. She decides that she can't make it on her own as a woman on this homestead. So she decides to dress like a man and disguise herself as a man and go looking for her brother who at this time now is a infamous outlaw so she goes to the capital of this state and she has one skill that no one even in her family knows about and she's been practicing on the side which is she's a sharpshooter so she has all this skill as a sharpshooter and the governor sees her shoot and decides to hire her into his personal guard 
to be a sharpshooter, but also he likes to gamble. So he uses her sort of as a, as a pawn with other men to bet against. I mean, these other people don't know that she's a, a sharpshooter. But she continues her quest to find her brother. And she eventually does find her brother. But the interesting thing is once she does and she no longer has to dress like a man or pretend like she's a man, she doesn't choose to go back. She doesn't want to really be a lady. And she's part of her brother's outlaw gang. So there are a couple things that make this book interesting. One of them is that she's found her brother and he's running a Robin Hood type outlaw gang. Or at least that's the way they perceive themselves. And Jess is portrayed as a heroine of the story, but she learns to be just as brutal as the men and do horrific things for survival. So is she really a heroine or is she a heroine by male cultural standards? That was an interesting dichotomy in the book. The other thing that's interesting is that she's an LGBTQ character. So she falls in love with one of the other women who also dresses as a man that's in this gang. And so if you're a person who's looking for, for some LGBTQ characters I would say that this would be a good book for you I like this book I didn't like it as well as a couple other westerns that I've read recently I read one a few months ago called the sisters brothers oh I love that book oh good <laughs> by Patrick DeWitt I love that book too and then news of the world by Paulette Giles is another one of my favorites that I recommend all the time that one is about a man who was in the Civil War, but in his older age becomes a newsreader. And so there were these people who would travel from town to town in the West and just read newspapers because a lot of people were illiterate and couldn't read. And, you know, people would throw a coin in there or what have you. There's a girl, a young girl who's German, whose family is murdered by the Indians. And he is given the task of, she speaks no English, of taking her across Texas to her German relatives that she has on the other side. And it's sort of about their journey. Um, so it's not, it's not a Western in the sense that there's a lot of, you know, cowboy and Indian kind of things, but they are in Texas and uh, you do get a lot of the pioneer culture there. And that one was a really good one. And it's short. It's very short, but it's a, it's a powerful read, I think. So anyway, that's what I read and I do like Westerns, and I'm currently also watching Deadwood, which is an oh, old man. series. <laughs> and actually, this character, Jess, reminds me a little bit of Calamity Jane in Deadwood. You get on these, like, kicks. I do. Where you read, yeah. like, all I of like something. To, I yeah. like to do deep dives right, into right. certain things. Right. Westerns are great. Yeah. yeah. Have you read The Virginian? No. This is putatively uh, the first Western. No. See, I guess when I was a kid, my dad would watch black and white westerns on TV. And so I just have in my mind that cheesy or I just didn't like them when I was a kid. So it took me a lot to get over that feeling of, oh, I just don't think I would like it seems hot. It seems dusty. Everybody's dirty. Like, I just can't get past it. You don't have to be in it. You just have to read about it. But it wasn't until my friend said, you've got to read Lonesome Dove. And I love it is a wonderful book. I think. Yeah. Have you read the uh, Blood Meridian? (laughs) <laughs> okay no <laughs> maybe maybe if you talk it up and and do well i started it and i was like i have got to put this aside and she's so, not somebody who and I'm deserts not, a book lightly she never does that i never do it i really feel like i don't know what is going on so Maybe you'll have to work your Moby Dick magic. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I, you know in some ways, it is a kind of nineteenth-century novel, isn't it? I mean, it's kind of written like one. It's, it's just yeah. bloody story of westward expansion in, in so many ways. I mean, it is this 
story of the West and how the West is imagined, I think, but in a particularly uh, brutal uh, retelling of that. I mean, I actually think Lonesome Dove is a, is a fantastic book. Mm-hmm. And I, The Sisters Brothers, and that's a violent book. It seems it's, to me. Yeah, it's violent. And this one, this one that I was talking about, The Whiskey When We're Dry, is also very violent. So, you know, if you're sensitive to that, it's probably not for you. There's a lot of... Shooting and killing and maybe that was on. with with Blood Meridian. Maybe because it's. I mean, I felt a little bit like I was reading. I, I felt confused in the same way that I feel confused when I read James Joyce. Oh, you, yes. you know what I mean? Like I just yes. felt like I understood basically what was going on, but I just like I'm gonna put this aside. But well, the one thing about westerns too is it really describes something that's very unique about American culture. The, the expansion west, the, the danger, the anarchy that was going on there is unique, I think. And so that's, that's one of the things I like about it now. Well, we will take a break. And when we come back, we are going to ask Dr. John Blanford his top five. We're back in the studio with John Blanford, and we're going to ask him his top five. So, John, what is your top book that you like to teach to students and why? So I have all sorts of answers to that, <laughs> but I'm going I'm to limit myself. And, I, you know, I was going to say Moby Dick, but I already talked about Moby Dick earlier, so I'm not going to say Moby Dick. Uh, but, you know, a book I've really enjoyed teaching lately, and I've taught it a couple times, is Edgar Allan Poe's uh, narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym, uh, his one novel. Nobody reads this as often, it seems to me, as like the Telltale Heart or the Raven or something like that. This is a fascinating book, and it is a lot of fun to teach, and I've really been enjoying it, in part because it has all the kind of sensational uh, elements one might expect from Edgar Allan Poe. People get trapped in things, as they often do in Poe stories. Uh, there's cannibalism, which is kind of fun, right? Wow. <laughs> but, then it, but then it veers toward the end into these kind of metaphysical waters, and it just it becomes such a different book at the end, and it, and it almost... There's all this kind of scientific and philosophical stuff. And so it allows you to have all these different types of conversations. It's almost like he lures you in with this sensational stuff uh, only to bedazzle you with this uh, heady philosophical stuff. And it is such a strange and messy and odd novel, and it's a lot of fun. All right. So your information page on Bellarmine's website says that you like to listen to music at inappropriate decibel levels. Why? So, <laughs> so what is your top band to uh, listen that's to? That's another question I can't really answer because I want to say a million bands, but I won't in the interest of time. And I'm top five, say not Tom Wood. Iron Maiden, because I saw them two weekends ago for the fourth time. They're and, still around? Oh, yes. Quite spectacularly. They actually, in the very first song, so not even the last song, they had a giant plane flying over the audience, and there were flamethrowers and fireworks, and they now have three guitarists, right? Wow. It was quite fun. And I went with a colleague from Bellarmine, and it was fun. That's a band I've been listening to since I was about, like, eight years old. Oh, and wow. Still Where it. was the concert? That was at, I used to be called Deer Creek, but it's now called Ralph, Ralph. Oh, Indianapolis? Center. Yeah, that mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. So it was packed. It, it was so... Not only are they still around, I think they're drawing bigger crowds than ever. It took us an hour to get out of the parking lot. Wow. So we read that you're a runner. And so is that accurate? This is accurate. Okay, good. So what is your top, what's the top thing you love about torturing yourself like that? Well, (laughs) I I just started 
eight, seven and a half years ago, I think I picked up running, so maybe a little later than some others do, but I thought, oh, and I started running, and I really enjoyed it, and I like having that time. I think that the the way that it kind of builds in time to kind of be alone and, and think is something I really enjoy. I mean, that's a luxury that I'm not sure I would otherwise have. And then I'm also a nuttily competitive person. So I do a couple of races a year. I'm doing a marathon in Tennessee in October. And I always run the one here in the spring with my cousin. And then we always go someplace. And we've done ones in Columbus, Ohio, and Indianapolis and various other places. So I like having, I'm like a goal-oriented person too. So I like training and all those kind of aspects to it. So it combines my need in life for goals, and I need them, uh, (laughs) with my kind of desire to occasionally have some time to myself and be alone and so on and so forth. So I like those things. What is your top reason that you like working with college students? Oh, it is just a gift. I mean, it is so great. What a job. It's a top reason. I'm not even sure. But I mean, just the idea, if you would have told, you know, 15-year-old me or something like that, that I would get to have really interesting conversations all the time with really interesting people about uh, books, I would have just been, I would have signed on for that right away. And then I'm, <laughs> hey, and they even pay me to do it, right? <laughs> so to me, that is just a, a real a real gift. The thing I like the most, <laughs> and I get this from my kind of administrator's role too, what I really love is to see the students, their trajectory over those four years and I am just so proud of how they managed to kind of transform themselves over those four years kind of in and through their education and the kind of young men and women that they are at the end of that I'm just always astonished the other thing too we're talking about how college used to be oh my gosh college students nowadays are so accomplished right not like back when I you know they all have a zillion things they're doing and they're just amazing just to see them kind of flourish and then when we send them out the door I just couldn't be prouder so I, it's kind of like having like a million kids yeah <laughs> so you don't have to pay for them to go to college yeah. uh, someone else does so, so that's great I love it all right you have a love for the crime literary genre including pulp detective fiction so what is the top book that piqued your interest do you remember if there was one well you know I kind of came into it through writing my dissertation which is on early crime literature in part i just did that because i wanted to write about something that mattered in the 19th century and all these people were reading popular crime literature it was really what people were kind of reading and thinking about and, and, and publishing at the time i'll say that from a 19th century standpoint one book that early on really riveted me is there's this book from the 1830s called fall river by a woman named Catherine Williams and basically what it does is it takes this case and relitigates it in a way there was a Methodist minister named Ephraim Avery who as this affairs thing keeps coming up but he supposedly at a camp meeting seduced a mill worker in in Fall River which is on the border of Massachusetts and Rhode Island she got pregnant she then died under mysterious circumstances. He was actually brought to trial for her murder. The church put the kind of full, all their resources behind him, obviously. He was acquitted, and, and people were outraged. And she wrote this kind of early work of true crime, basically re-indicting him 
uh, very powerfully. And I thought that was a kind of powerful kind of work of kind of advocacy, but I also loved how hybrid and multi-generic it was. I mean, she uses stuff from the trial records and, and newspapers, but she also, parts of it read like sentimental fiction, huh. complete with dialogue and kind of reconstructed scenes that you might even see in like true crime shows today, you know, with the little mm -hmm. uh, reenactments. She kind of does the literary version of it. Parts of it are kind of polemic. There's this long kind of expose of camp meetings at the end. I mean, it's there's poetry that she wrote in. So it's kind of all over the place generically and that was exciting to me so i thought what is there more stuff like this and the answer is yeah there's a lot and and so that's kind of what got me in and then the 20th century stuff i mean i really enjoy raymond chandler and actually just read the long goodbye and had been i had had it for years but i'd read all the other ones and i like them so much i'm like you know what i'm not ready to say goodbye just yet. I'm going to hang on to this one and like read it in my old age. But I didn't do that, so I read it this year. I'm not really even sure why. Uh, and it's beautiful and, and sad and, and wonderful, just like his other novels. I like Dashiell Hammett a lot. I think I mentioned Megan Abbott. I think she's she's fantastic, a contemporary uh, current crime writer. Actually, like Patricia Highsmith, a whole bunch. And I just read Deep Water this year by her. Have you, have you guys read mm -hmm. that? You should read this. It, it is dark. It is pitch black uh, for a novel that especially for a novel that centers around a swimming pool right huh. but boy is it good and so i'm kind of reading some more of her uh stuff too so i guess i didn't you said one and <laughs> <laughs> that's okay you were giving us lots of books that we can we can look up and, and see if we want to add them to our good reads. i list. have one to add to that not so much detective crime but true crime and I love that genre, and the one that got me hooked was Devil in the White City by oh, Eric Larson. I love that book. It's set during the World's Fair in Chicago, uh, late 18, I think 1890s maybe, but there's also a serial killer at the same time, and it's sort of parallel storylines, and it was fascinating. But there was a new one recently that I read that I loved. I don't know if you've read this one, Killer of the Flower Moon no. by David Gran. It came out a couple years ago, and it is the story of the Osage Indian tribe in Oklahoma. I think it was the 1920s, and at that time, the land that they were on, that their reservation was on, was very rich in oil, and the Osage Indians were some of the richest people in the world. There were people who wanted ill for them because they wanted that that money so they started dying off they were killed in various ways hmm. oh. so this case is sort of what began the fbi and they sent their agents uh, to investigate it and it is a fascinating oh, that book awesome. what's it yeah. called again killers of the flower moon by david gran i'm in yeah you need to read that one you need to read that one well, it has been so much fun having you in here in the studio with us, Dr. Yay. John Blanford. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. It's been a real <laughs> pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. For show notes for any episode, please go to our blog site at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. Follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to and when new episodes air. If you enjoy our show, spread the word and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots, community-based radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.